listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words, and he wrote words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads. The collected sayings of the masters are, the, are like nails firmly fixed by a shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for, those, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed and judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Javi, for that reading. So this is it, you guys. Um, After seven weeks, I think it's been, in Ecclesiastes, we have talked about Hevel, right? Vanity. Uh, we talked about how there's a time for everything. We heard that song by, was it the birds or something like that for the, for the 60s? Um, we talked about the futility of work and wealth, sorrow and loss. After seven weeks, we have finally reached the end of the matter, the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. This has been uh, an emotional series for me. Um, way more emotional than I expected. I tend to operate uh, up here in my, in my brain um, more than down here. Uh, probably why my forehead is so huge. But um, <laughs> this, this book and the, the heavy topics contained within uh, have really provoked some stuff for me. Hopefully it's provoked some stuff uh, for some of you as well. One thing we haven't talked about at all, though, in this series uh, is the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Usually, when we work our way through a book of the Bible, we talk a lot about the context, the background, who wrote it, who were they writing to, Um, but we haven't talked about the authorship of this book much at all, uh, mainly because there's a lot we just don't know. We don't know the exact context for Ecclesiastes. Uh, The author of this book never names him or herself. We know it's a Jewish book. It comes to us from, like, the, the ancient Hebrew tradition, but that's pretty broad, Um, We don't even know for sure what century this book was written. You know, normally with books of the Bible, we can, oftentimes you can pinpoint it within at least like a a century or so. This book could have been written anywhere from uh, the 10th century B.C., so like the 900s B.C., all the way to about 200 B.C. It's like an 800-year span when this book could have been authored. But the ending of this book gives us some really interesting information uh, that sheds some light on the authorship of Ecclesiastes, and I want to highlight this before we get into the content. Uh, There are two distinct voices speaking to us in this book. Um, There is the voice of the teacher. That's like the main voice of Ecclesiastes, the person we've been listening to all this time. The teacher is the one who says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. It's all hevel, it's all vapor, it's all passing away. We know that voice. We're familiar with the teacher. But there's another voice in this book, and I'm going to call him the editor of Ecclesiastes. 
Um, there's the teacher and there's the editor, the person who collected and compiled all the sayings of the teacher. This is where we can actually learn a little bit about the Bible by reading the Bible. Um, see, books in the ancient world did not work a lot like books today. You didn't just sit down at your computer and write a book. One, there was no computers. But, but even what they did have, ink and paper, very rare, very expensive, hard to get your hands on, and most people couldn't read. So it would be a lot of work to produce something that most people couldn't access. This was an oral culture. So you can almost imagine the teacher of Ecclesiastes speaking these things, saying these things, delivering these poems and stuff that we've been reading these last seven weeks. And then you'd imagine an editor, uh, someone who is maybe a student of the teacher or maybe a scribe who's writing it all down to preserve it to save it for people like us to read two to 3,000 years later. Those are the two voices in this book. Um, We see these two voices right at the start of the book. So this is from Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Someone wrote that, right? Like... And it, and it probably isn't the teacher, uh, unless he's referring to himself in third person, like a, like a professional wrestler or something. Um, but that's the editor. And then we get the words of the teacher. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You see kind of the two voices there? Does that make sense at all? Okay, good. Um, the two voices are even more pronounced at the end of this book. Uh, the passage Javi just read for us starts out with this concluding poem from the teacher. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain, in the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the women who grind cease working because they are few, And those who look through the windows see dimly. It's a powerful poem. Kind of dark. He's talking about death. The teacher's talking about the end of life and age, the way everything starts to break down over a long enough timeline. Buildings, societies, bodies. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Hold fast to God while you're young. Don't wait until you're an old man and your vision starts to go. The the light of the moon becomes dim. You can't hear the songbirds as well anymore. Don't wait until you're faced with your own mortality and a lifetime full of regret to turn to God. Follow God while you're young. Cultivate that relationship in your youth when you're full of life and vitality and you can enjoy the fullness of creation. That's the wisdom the teacher's imparting in kind of his last word. And then before he drops the mic, he ends just as he started. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. And that's the last word from the teacher. But it's not the end of the book. We get this little memo, uh, this postscript, 
in my Bible, it's, it's labeled an epilogue from this person we're calling the editor. Uh, verse 9. <clears throat> I thought about doing like a different accent with this, but that would be weird. Um, <laughs> besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words. <laughs> That's a word for it. Um, and he wrote his words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads. The collected sayings of the masters are like nails firmly fixed by a shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books, there is no end. Funny line to put in your book, <laughs> right? Like, like, of making many books, there's no end. Watch out for those people who write books. That'd be like me saying, keep your eye on those preachers, man. They, they can't trust them. Um, <clears throat> the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ominous. So some commentators think that this little postscript here is meant to soften the words of the teacher, almost like, uh, almost like damage control. You know, I know, I know that other guy said that everything is, is hevel, everything's vapor, it's all falling apart, but don't get too carried away with that. You know, make sure you still follow God. Uh, there's even a few scholars out there who argue that Ecclesiastes wouldn't have made it into the Bible without this little epilogue. I think that's total crap, personally. I think, I think that is, that's hevel. It's bull hevel. Um, that's <laughs> not how we use the word hell. But no, personally, uh, feel free to disagree with, uh, with me on this. But I love this little conclusion to the book, and I think it actually ties up the heart of this book pretty nicely. Ecclesiastes covers a lot of ground, um, and it's not very linear. If you've been reading along with us through this book, you know that the themes of this book ebb and flow. They get remixed. They repeat themselves in, in new ways. Uh, themes about loss and suffering, mortality, meaning, and we didn't even cover everything this book talks about. You can't in seven weeks. Um, there's a whole section of proverbial wisdom, proverb-style wisdom, uh, in chapters 10 and 11 that's really interesting. Uh, you get li lines like these, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment stink. Next slide, there we go. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment stink, so a little folly outweighs wisdom. That's kind of clever. Um, there's also uh, every Republican's favorite Bible verse, Ecclesiastes 10.2, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of a fool to the left. <laughs> that's any conservatives in the room, that is my, that's my gift to you. You can use it, use it well. Um, use it in your next Facebook debate against me, probably. Um, <laughs> another theme we haven't really touched on at all, because like, it pops up here and there, but it's never really the focus, uh, is the importance of friendship, companionship, having a partner. Um, it's from Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? <clears throat> and we also find, sprinkled throughout this book, a lot of insights and commentary about God. The teacher talks about the mystery of God. How we might say things about God, but ultimately God is unknowable. Um, this is from Ecclesiastes 3. God has made everything suitable for its time. 
Moreover, God has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He talks about God as a righteous judge. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for God has appointed a time for every matter and every work. The teacher tells us that joy comes from God. Apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? And we even get this little section uh, in Ecclesiastes 5 about the importance of showing reverence for God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I think every preacher alive could probably learn from that one. Um, The teacher's no atheist, right? He laments the hevel state of existence. He complains about the fact that nothing lasts. He doesn't know why God has made the world this way, and yet the teacher always comes back to God. It's like a, like a refrain, like a, like a bass note running under Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think awareness of God is the flip side to becoming aware of our own mortality, maybe. Like that knowledge of death lurking over our shoulders, never knowing when it's going to come. It makes us hunger for something more, something that lasts, something bigger than us. One of the great tragedies of modern life is that we're just not hungry anymore. Both literally and figuratively, to exist in the modern world, in like 21st century America, is to be free of most of the hungers and pains that have plagued human beings throughout history. Like most of us in this room know where our next meal is coming from. We know when we go back home and flip on the light, it's going to work. We know the heat is going to come on. We know if we get sick, there's a doctor somewhere who's going to help. The bulk of people who've lived in history didn't know any of that. The bulk of people alive today don't know any of that for certain. If you live in a place like Ukraine, Syria, Turkey, China, Your safety is not guaranteed, even here in the U.S. Um, I heard a statistic this past week that made me pause for a minute and think. And this is a local one. This is close to home. Uh, A couple years ago, the college at Brockport, right here in the village, did a study of the student body. uh, And they discovered that 48% of their students face some level of food insecurity. 48%. Almost half the students at SUNY Brockport, four blocks away from us, face some level of food insecurity, hunger, on a regular basis. We don't see that, though, most of us, because we've insulated ourselves. We're we're in a bubble. We take our homeless and our poor and we drive them to shelters in the city. I know, I've done that trip many times. There aren't shelters right around here. Um, We take our sick and our elderly and we put them in uh, long-term care facilities away from day-to-day life. 
If our minds start to wander, if we start to have troubling thoughts for even a second about our own mortality or how messed up the world is, we have an abundance of distractions at our disposal, right? Like TV, uh, streaming services, social media. My go-tos are YouTube and video poker. They're great distractions. There's a reason um, that churches are alive and thriving in immigrant communities, poor communities, uh, parts of the world like Southeast Asia and Latin America. There's a reason that people who don't live in luxury and wealth have that spiritual consciousness while so many Western churches are empty and dying. We're in a bubble. We've protected ourselves from those harsh realities of life, and we lose sight of God. The book of Ecclesiastes exists to pop that bubble. That's the wisdom of this book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. A couple things here that I just want to highlight, kind of break this down a little bit. The first one is this phrase, fear of God. Fear of God is a phrase that rubs a lot of modern people the wrong way, right? It's like, it's like we're almost offended by it. Like, fear of God, why should I be afraid of God? The same reason an ant's afraid of a boot, I would, I would imagine, right? Like, like, it's kind of a silly thing to ask. But I think, again, part of our modern existence, we've forgotten what it is to be afraid. To acknowledge our own smallness. The fact that no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what we achieve or earn, how many trophies we acquire, our lives are pretty small in the grand scheme of things. We are not the main characters in a sitcom about our lives. Uh, as an only child, that's a very hard reality for me to accept. You know, apparently the world doesn't revolve around me. Someone should have told me before age 30. Um, <laughs> but if we can't accept our own smallness, we're never gonna understand what it is to fear God, to stand in awe of the creator of the universe that base note, that eternal presence that sustains and gives life to all creation. It's, it's beautiful, also kind of terrifying to think about the bigness of God and the smallness of us. And yet, in spite of how big God is, we're told that God is good, that God is love. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or seen uh, something in nature that just put you in a state of awe and wonder. Multiply that by like a million and you have a, a clue of what this is talking about. That's what the Bible means by fear of God. And if fear of God uh, isn't a foreign enough concept for us, then we get this line. Um, for God will bring every deed into judgment. We don't like the sound of that one, do we? At all. Uh, mainly because we're afraid the judgment's going to be against us, right? Um, a lot of churches uh, and a lot of religious people wield the judgment of God like a weapon. It's like they've got God the judge, but they've forgotten that humility that comes 
when you have fear of God. They just, they just like to use the judge part to beat people up. We think that we're the judge, that whatever we say goes, we decide who's in and out. That is what gives judgment a bad name. See, in Hebrew consciousness, in like ancient Jewish consciousness, judgment was synonymous with justice. A God who judges is a God who establishes justice in the world. We don't really think like this anymore, but it's important to, to capture this. If you've been uh, abused or exploited in some way, uh, you need justice. You want a judgment from a righteous judge, a verdict in your favor. And the book of Ecclesiastes ends with this promise that that judgment is coming. The justice of God is coming. The God who sees everything is coming to make things right. God's going to tear down every structure in society that maintains injustice and inequality. Everything that allows certain people to isolate ourselves, protect ourselves, distract ourselves, while people in our own community go hungry. That's hevel. That's coming to an end. And even though it might be painful for us, it might force us to surrender a little bit of our privilege, the end of that injustice will be good news. There's a couple ways to, exp- to respond to the awareness that everything is passing away, everything is vanity, everything is hevel. We can distract ourselves with entertainment, work, devices, not think about it. Um, We could lament the state of the world and become bitter. We could lash out at God, become nihilists, right? Or we can fear God and keep his commandments. Let that awareness of our own mortality point us to the God who sees every secret thing. This is the last part I want to highlight. Every secret thing. Every hidden thing. God sees everything no matter how small. And that means it's not meaningless. The very start of this series, we talked about this Hebrew word, hevel. Let's say it one more time for the the good of the order. Hevel. Hevel. Uh, It's this word that gets translated vanity, or in some Bibles, it's meaningless. Literally means vapor. It's this idea that everything is passing away. And we talked about how just because everything is vapor, that doesn't mean it's meaningless. The message of this book is not that life is meaningless or pointless. It's that it's short. We are here for a moment, and then we're gone. So we need to savor it. God savors it. God sees all the small things, all the hevel of existence, and God values it. God values us because God made us. Doesn't matter that it doesn't last. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is gone forever. And in Christ, God promises to bring a righteous judgment into the world 
that is going to set things right. That is our hope. Everything is Hevel, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. Even the little stuff, like you and me, has infinite worth and value in the eyes of God. The end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Let's pray. God, thank you for making this world and calling it good. Thank you for finding value, instilling value, even in little stuff. Thank you for sending your son to restore the universe. God, help us to remember the wisdom of this book. For as harsh as it sometimes sounds to us, as painful, we know it comes to pop that bubble, and Lord, we know that's a good thing. Help us to remember our own smallness and to trust in your bigness. And God, help us to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.